the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. This is an episode that I've been looking forward to for quite a while, and it was worth the wait. Bill Rollins is an engineer, inventor, entrepreneur, pilot, and author of The Elusive D.B. Cooper, How He Escapes. That book came out in 2016, and I would say it represents the first half of Bill's work on the case. The second half of his work started when he found his guy, Joe Lackich. That is a name you probably haven't heard before, but one that you should pay attention to. I found this story riveting, and I'm sure you will as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Bill Rollins. Well, how did you get started with D.B. Cooper? You know, I always had a casual interest in D.B. Cooper. I mean, it's a very interesting story, but I I never felt uh, that I was going to be able to solve this mystery. I mean, this, you know, if the FBI, uh, with all their resources and manpower and and such, I mean, I'm not going to be able to to solve the case when they're working on it. So I just always had a casual interest. I I remember when it happened. I remember my father was fascinated with uh, D.B. Cooper because he was not a typical criminal. He was polite. You know, he was dressed in a business suit and, uh, you know, people even described him as being nice. So that's sort of, uh, how I won't call that started. That's just, you know, uh, my perspective over the years. Yeah, definitely an interesting criminal. <laughs> how how did you really get started into D.B. Cooper then? Well, it uh, was uh, the show that he had back in July of 2016 called D.B. Cooper Case Closed. And they were running some uh, trailers, you know, before the actual show. And they were saying, oh yeah, that's him. And he's still alive. And it sounded like, wow, they found D.B. Cooper and he's still alive. I mean, it was, you know, very intriguing. And so I watched the show and it was very good in the beginning. They talked about, uh, the history of the case and what had happened and some of the various suspects through the years, et cetera. Um, but then they started focusing on Rackstraw and, you know, was he this man, Norman DeWinter and, you know, which I couldn't make a connection between Norman DeWinter and D.B. Cooper anyway. I mean, right. okay. What, what's, so he was Norman DeWinter. Who cares? All right. So the best part of the show was when they brought on uh, Bill Ratajkowski and uh, Tina. And, uh, you know, that was really uh, the highlight of the show. But then obviously they also announced, you know, went to the FBI and the FBI announced they were closing the case. And that sort of upset me because I felt, gee, I've been waiting all these years to find out who this man was. And now we're never going to know. And 
that's when I started in earnest trying to find out what I could about this case. And we should let everyone know that Rackstraw actually just passed away a couple of days ago as we're- No, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? No, I missed that. That's too bad. Yeah, he just passed away a few days ago. Uh, I believe it was said natural causes. Huh. You know, I talked with him about a year ago. You did? Yeah, I, I called him and talked to him because, you know, I know he wasn't D.B. Cooper, okay? And I spoke with him, and he's a colorful character, but he also seemed to know a lot about law because he kept, uh, you know, referring to these uh, articles of law and stuff and what they meant. But, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, were you D.B. Cooper? And he said no, and he says, and and the team that's, you know, investigating me knows it as well. He says, in fact, he says they've offered me like a million dollars to make a confession. And uh, he said, you know, then they can make a media story out of it. And, you know, I can go to jail. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, it was. And I told him, you know, I know he's not D.B. Cooper. I mean, he's too young. And the primary witness in the case, you know, Tina Mucklow said, you know, no, he's not D.B. Cooper. I mean, what else do you need? Yeah, the age is a hard thing to get over. I mean, Tina said he was in his mid to late 40s. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's hard for a woman in her late 20s to confuse a guy in his late 20s for being in his mid to late 40s. Right. But that documentary definitely got a lot of people involved in the D.B. Cooper world. I've spoken to quite a few who uh, entered the community after watching that History Channel doc. Yeah, yep. And that's that's what it was. I mean, and, and I said, you know, it was the the real thing was the FBI closing the case. That, yeah, and you found that a little suspicious. Well, suspicious. It's just like uh, frustrating. Uh, yeah, that, know, that thought, suspicious is the wrong word for it. Yeah, I just felt like sooner or later, you know, somebody on their deathbed would make a confession and, you know, it would all come together and we'd know it was D.B. Cooper. But, uh, you know, just never happened. And here we have, you know, at that time, 45 years down the road and, you know, the search is over. And it's uh, just, you know, sort of a letdown. So at that point, were you just deciding to kind of look into it for fun or did you have a plan at that point? Like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to seriously look into this. You know, I wasn't ever expecting to go to the extent I have now. Okay, it was just like I I almost like what is it about this case that was so difficult? Okay. So I started to to look at it more in earnest because in the past I never had. And, you know, the first uh, thing I did was just start looking at the internet and searching for articles and, uh, you know, uh, database, you know, places where I could find data, whether it would be at the uh, drop zone or the DB Cooper forum. Uh, They had a place called the vault where they had some, I think, released documents from the FBI. So I I just started going on a a massive search for information on D.B. Cooper because I had very little. Right. So um, as I started to find this stuff, I uh, first uh, had the impression from the things I had heard through the years that, 
you know, Koopa made a daring jump from the back of a 727. All right. But then as I started to read the details, it, it was like, this was far beyond daring. Okay. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was so one of a kind. I mean, this man's up at 10,000 feet. It's, it's three hours after sunset. All right. So it's, it's definitely dark, you know, darkness. And on the ground, it's 42 degrees and it's windy and it's rainy. And up at 10,000 feet, it's below freezing, you know, in the 20s. And there, as a pilot, you know, and, and I'm a pilot, by the way, uh, the pilot used the term in the soup. And that's even used in some of the uh, uh, exchanges with, uh, you know, air traffic control. And basically, that means you can't see anything. There's no visibility. Okay. You can't see the ground. You can't see, uh, you know, 200 feet in front of you. You're just in a big, thick layer of fog. And, and that's the way they were flying at the time. And they had this man walked down that stairwell and jumped. And when I read that, I was just like, what is going through this man's head? I mean, this is, you know, borderline suicide. And that that was where I where I sat. Yeah, borderline suicide for sure. And he was able to remain calm, cool, and collected the whole time. I, I, I know. And so uh, I said, well, maybe this guy's just a dumb criminal. Okay, because that's the way he's been painted, you know, in some uh, uh, articles, right? Yeah, that's what Ralph Himmelsbach yeah. says. Right. So I start to. Uh, uh, look for more information, and I find myself at the Citizen Sleuths website. Okay, and we got to give Tom K and his team a lot of credit because they've done some incredible work. Okay, and definitely. As I read through all this information and read about the particles on his tie, and then I got to their conclusions which was that Cooper was either an engineer or a manager in a metals working facility, that hit home, okay? Because I'm an engineer, you know, and I have been for 40 years, and uh, I just couldn't fathom why somebody like this would do this, all right? And, I mean, engineers, yeah, we're geeks, okay, we're, you know, uh, more interested in science and, uh, you know, math than we are, you know, sometimes uh, other things like television reality shows or whatever. But uh, I just uh, read that and I said, you know, this man's not dumb. And if he's wearing a tie and working in this facility, he's not a criminal, okay? Because he's a trusted member of this company's uh, management team. So now I was really confused because I couldn't understand what was motivating this man to jump out of the airplane. Uh, I continued to, you know, look for more information and read more uh, in, in the drop zone and on the DB Cooper forum. But on the drop zone, uh, I noticed something that uh, Joe Weber had uh, written. And you, you know who Joe Weber is. Yes, I uh, spoke to her on the phone recently. Okay. Well, you know, I have never spoken with Joe, but, you know, my understanding is that, you know, after her husband died and made a deathbed confession that he was Dan Cooper, that she's been a very tenacious investigator. 
I would say she's dedicated her life to it. Okay. And in the drop zone, apparently, and I'm guessing this is around the 2007 timeframe, that she actually spoke with Tina Mucklow. And she wrote that Tina said, Cooper was a very sad man. And I looked at the jump and, you know, the suicidal, near suicidal nature of it. And the fact that Tina said he was a very sad man. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this man, I wonder if something tragic happened to this man. Well, Darren, I no sooner thought that. And I had my arms down on my desk and my head down and I was crying uncontrollably. Okay. And it was as if my it was as if my wife and son had perished and I was left all alone in this world. You understand? Yeah. And I just the if this happened to me, I think I'd have to be institutionalized because I don't know if I could deal with the grief. And this is what I felt. This is what this man was going through. I had gone through. I felt not only the grief, but the let's call it the lack of purpose. I mean, that's the way I felt, you know, if my wife and son died, it was like, what would be my reason to live? I just didn't know. And I felt like uh, I didn't want to live anymore. I wanted to be with them. And so as I got to that point in my thought process, and again, I'm crying, you know, I'm, I'm down, my head's on my desk and I'm crying uncontrollably, but these thoughts are all going through my head. And I I said, you know, maybe I should, you know, think about committing suicide. You know, it will end the pain. But then the grudge came back because I had read, you know, obviously Cooper had a grudge. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, why just kill myself by, you know, jumping off a cliff when I can maybe jump out of an airplane and get revenge? And all of a sudden... I stopped crying and I came around because all of a sudden my life now had a purpose and that purpose was revenge. And that's what has kept me in this, uh, you know, investigation is, you know, as I call it, uh, you know, and I wrote in my book, you know, there are forces at work in this world that are far beyond what we understand. Okay, and I even have a chapter in my book, which I call spiritual guidance. And that's what I say, you know, has helped me and guided me to where I am today. Yeah. And what you just said, I mean, there's a version of it on the very first page of your book, Um, your book, The Elusive D.B. Cooper, How He Escapes. And yeah, and that's something I want to talk about. This book came out not long after the History Channel documentary and and it also doesn't point to anyone which i thought was interesting and you have a chapter on suspects in the book and it it basically says i discredit all suspects yeah i i looked at it that they can't all be db cooper okay (laughs) you mean 30 people didn't do it yeah right right and the other thing was uh, I just decided I needed to keep an open mind. Okay. As I went into this process, I needed to, uh, 
not focus on this suspect or that suspect. I just needed to keep a very open mind and, and, you know, take in all the information I could and try and see if I could come up with a solution. It's a great book. I really like uh, kind of the way it ends. You just kind of line out exactly how you believe it would have been pulled off. And, and it makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, there, there are two components to, to how I've found D.B. Cooper. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to say I think I found him. I, this is him, okay, this man that we will discuss. Um, thing, thing was that uh, without this uh, spiritual guidance, as I call it, okay, I never would have found this man. All right. So let me tell you a little bit more about what happened in that realm. Um, I kept after, after this, you know, emotional episode where I'm, you know, crying uncontrollably and thinking about who this man is and, and feeling the connection to, you know, what had happened to him. They say, I regained my composure and I went back to studying uh, articles and looking for more information and some of the FBI uh, 302s were starting to become public and that information. And I just kept, you know, studying everything I could. And two days later, I remember it was the middle of the afternoon. I'm sitting here at my computer and I'm looking at all this information, but I'm thinking back on two days prior, you know, when I had uh, basically broke down and cried uncontrollably. And I thought to myself, did I really feel somebody reaching out to me or am I just getting myself all psyched out? Well, I no sooner uh, ended that thought and there I was again, Darren, my arms down on my desk, my head down, and I'm crying uncontrollably again. And this time, you know, I sort of realized uh, this was something. This wasn't my imagination or whatever. There was a connection, okay? And after about 30 seconds of crying, I lifted my head up and I said out loud, yes, I feel your pain. And at that moment, I knew something tragic had happened to this man, okay? I didn't know who he was. I didn't know the real nature of his tragedy. All I know was something tragic had happened to this man and his grudge was his motivation, not the money. Now, you probably saw in some of the documents that I sent you that uh, this has now been verified. So a year and a half after I wrote my book, uh, the FBI documents are now coming out via the Freedom of Information Act. So uh, some of your listeners can go to uh, uh, the D.B. Cooper uh, vault in the FBI website. And there is a document D.B. Cooper 2598 and 2599. And this one is uh, comes into the director in Seattle from Philadelphia. And uh, it's uh, Tina advises, she recalls the following regarding the flight of hijacking, which she may not have related previously due to her emotional state. In other words, that night in Reno, she may not have revealed things properly. So she says, hijacker indicated to her he had a grudge to settle, not with her airline, just a grudge. 
Uh, you can go on and find other documents, DB Cooper 2600 uh, and uh, DB Cooper 4905 and 4906 and 4895 and 4896. In all those, you'll find the FBI knew Cooper hijacked the plane because he had a grudge to settle. So if you have a suspect and you're saying that... Uh, um, he was really trying to, uh, he needed money or, you know, he had a big problem to solve and needed cash to get out of his problem. Uh, you haven't really thoroughly read the FBI documents because the, the grudge was the reason he hijacked the airplane. I agree with that because I, I really don't think it's just about the money because he had kind of a cavalier attitude about it. I mean, he went to hand Tina a couple bundles of money. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, if you read the documents, uh, you know, he had that bag of money in the back of the plane. And uh, I think this is about the time the passengers had deplaned, but the uh, three flight attendants were in the back of the plane with, you know, with Cooper. And so Tina just says jokingly, you know, boy, there's a lot of money in that bag. Can I have some? And so Cooper reaches in, grabs a bundle of money and hands it to her. <laughs> And, you know, $2,000 back then would be like $12,000 today. I mean, it's not a small amount of money. No, very significant. But, yeah, but she had to refuse it, obviously, because of, uh, you know, the airline policy. Right, about not accepting gratuity, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, right, couldn't accept gratuities. But... <laughs> You're not allowed to accept a $2,000 tip during a hijacking. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, he doesn't fit the uh, uh, what do you want to what do you want to call it here the uh, uh, op modus operandi is that the word or whatever the profile of a greedy criminal. Yeah, he definitely he, does not fit any profile. Yeah, like oh okay, you want want some money? Sure, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> what was your decision about re releasing the book? Did you feel like it was finished? Because when I finished reading it, I felt like you weren't even done with it. I definitely uh, got spiritual guidance. Okay, there was a there was something here beyond uh, ordinary that was leading me. Okay, down this trail. So it's really key if you know something, you understand what I'm trying to say. In other words. I knew Cooper, okay, had suffered some tragedy and his grudge was his motivation, okay? And I didn't have to worry about, you know, looking for guys who were destitute for money or, you know, got into some, you know, predicament with the mafia and needed to, you know, pay him back. Or I didn't need to look for some guy who was just saying he was doing this as a stunt or, a, you know, a dare or whatever. You know, that that's, none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered was a man with a grudge, okay? And this is a serious grudge because if he's going to put his life at risk the way he's doing, this is no lighthearted, you know, uh, grudge like, you know, the IRS, you know, cheated me out of $50, okay? <laughs> right. So I uh, um, basically put myself in his shoes. I said, okay, you know, I'm a, I'm a pilot and I also have an instrument rating, 
So I know something about flying and flying in inclement weather. And also I know something about air traffic control and, you know, and air traffic procedures. So, and then being an engineer, I've been trained to think logically. Okay. So I sat and looked at everything logically and said, okay, I'm Cooper. I'm distraught. You know, my life is not, I'm not in a good place. I don't even care in some ways if I live or I die. Uh, how am I going to hijack this plane, get the money and get away and leave no evidence behind? So that's what I started doing. I started rationalizing. What do you have to do? Obviously, you can't leave uh, fingerprints, you know, on the airplane. Okay. Or leave behind evidence, you know, like a book of matches or the note you wrote so they can compare your handwriting to other handwriting. Okay. So, which Cooper did. But the other thing is to this day, the FBI still does not know how Cooper got to the airport, you know, at Portland airport. All right. So you have to ask yourself that people say, well, yeah, he died and he's up in the woods dead and he's a dumb criminal. Well, if he's such a dumb criminal, you know, how come nobody can figure out how he got to the airport? Was that just a dumb criminal's luck? Or was this really planned? Do you understand what I'm saying? Definitely. Yeah. It was planned so that nobody would know how he got to the airport. That was all part of the plan. That wasn't. So I took a totally different perspective than a lot of other people. I did not look at Cooper as a dumb criminal, but instead an intelligent man, okay, who had a grudge and meticulously planned this hijacking, okay? He sweated the details and had an ingenious plan. That was my approach to, you know, to this situation. How long after your book did you, did you find something? You know, I finished my book, I'm going to say in the mid-September timeframe. I, I just, everything happened. It came together uh, and... You probably, if you read the book, you realize that I realized this man escaped with the money and everything came together. Okay. I found out how he got to the airport and, you know, uh, without being, uh, you know, traced. Uh, I found out uh, why the money ended up on Tina Barr. Okay. And you know, again, everything lines in, you know, the citizen sleuths say the uh, flight path, okay, is accurate. Okay, they can't find anything to say that, you know, the, the flight path deviated off to the west or the east. You know, they were pretty much on the course that was given by the FBI. Uh, if you look at some of those documents that I gave you, I, I can't remember which one it is right now, but that list of documents there was one, and I think it was Northwest Airlines, that stated the airplane was on uh, autopilot. So if it's on autopilot, it's not going to deviate too much from, you know, the, the actual course. Yeah, and Tom K. told me that there's no reason to question the flight path. Yes, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that, okay? Because especially if you're going to be up in conditions like they're talking about, you know, in the soup, and you got autopilot, you're not going to hand fly the airplane. I mean, that's crazy. Okay. That just makes all kinds of extra work for you in terms of, uh, gee, am I wings level? Uh, you know, am I uh, climbing or am I descending or am I staying in level flight? 
you know, all these type of concerns that you have to worry about and just monitor your instruments because you're hand flying the airplane where you put it on autopilot and that stuff's taken care of for you. So I, uh, I agree. The flight path is accurate, but there's some other evidence that a lot of people just seem to overlook. And one of those is that Cooper was seen on the ground that night in aerial. Right. So if you, uh, uh, look, I think I may have sent you an article that was done by the uh, Telegraph in the UK. And this was done in 2011 on the 40th anniversary of the hijacking. Mm-hmm. And they went to Ariel and they visited, you know, Donna D. Elliott. And she said that that night at the uh, tavern, there were a couple uh, uh, patrons who saw a man walking out by Merwin Lake. And they wondered why anyone would be out walking on such a gruesome night. There's, there's, you know, that story. And it's definitely not, I I mean, I I lived in the area and it's definitely not an area where people just walk around. You're deep, deep into the woods. And um, just like the, just like the citizen sluice did a uh, probability analysis, you know, that the tie belonged to uh, a Cooper. Okay. In my book, I don't really put numbers to this, but I say, what is the probability that we have a man uh, walking uh, through, uh, you know, an aerial where there's only, you know, like 400 people who live there, all right? And he's a stranger because the people see him don't recognize him, all right? And he's out walking on this night on a, a country road with no sidewalks and no streetlights, okay? It's the night before Thanksgiving, and he's and unlike a stranded motorist, he's not flagging anyone down for a ride. So, you know, I'll leave it to you know the listeners to decide what's the probability that this isn't DB Cooper, and I'm going to tell you it's pretty remote. Yeah. Okay. Now beyond that, I also found an article, and I think it was printed in I think the newspaper was the Eugene Register, but you know it's uh, in Portland. I mean in uh, Oregon, and. The title is Hundreds Cavort at Cooper Caper. And I think I may have sent you a copy of this. But a man named Harold Babitsky, who lived five miles out of town, okay, said that his daughter was driving home that night and she was startled to see a stranger, you know, driving, I mean, walking alongside the road. And it says, you know, he is a stranger who's carrying a package and uh, he looked like he didn't want to ride from anybody. So that was, you know, what he said in 1975 at the annual Cooper, uh, what's it called here, the, you know, the the Cooper celebration or whatever, that the annual one. Oh, I think um, in 2011, it was a symposium. No, no, no. This is, this is at the Ariel Tavern every year. Oh, um, D.B. Cooper days. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the 1976 D.B. Cooper days. So... Uh, I, I said, these people saw him. I mean, what's the probability that you have some man out walking, you know? So that's, that's what I did. Now I will tell you that, uh, after I wrote my book, I actually, uh, found Harold Babitsky's daughter and I talked with her and obviously she said this was a long time ago, but she was coming home. She lived in Vancouver, Washington at the time. Okay, she was in her early 20s. 
and she got done working and she was coming back to Ariel to her family home for Thanksgiving. Okay. And she's driving, you know, up Lewis River Road, which parallels Lewis River. And there's this man and he's walking. And she couldn't, she said, if she saw, you know, a picture of him, she couldn't recognize him because she didn't really see him for that long or didn't see his face, you know, with great detail. But what she did say was interesting. She said he was not a heavy man. He was thin and he was dressed in all black. So now we got to add to the probability, you know, what kind of dummy would be out walking on a rainy, cold night? And then she said it was around 1130 in the evening. Okay. Dressed in all black. Okay. Well, I have to look at how Cooper was dressed. He was dressed in, in black clothing. So Yeah, that is the right place at the right time. Right. Now, uh, there are FBI documents because uh, they're heavily redacted. But, you know, I can fill in some of the, uh, the blanks for everyone. If I can give me just a moment here and I'll give you some of the numbers. But in the first document, uh, Harold Babitsky goes to the FBI and explains, you know, about his daughter seeing this person. Okay. So it is D.B. Cooper... Dash 8047. Okay. And the interview was on April 10th, 1972. And he said, you know, again, on November 24th, 1971, blank, which was his daughter, was bound for his residence. And about two or three miles west of Merwin Dam, saw a man walking along the road. She was frightened and locked her car doors. And further advised, you consider this instrument extremely peculiar peculiar and stated that he works the night shift and has driven the same stretch of road for three and a half years. And during this time, we've only seen two persons on the road after dark. Okay. So that was Harold giving his uh, testimony to the uh, FBI. Well, the next day they interview Harold's daughter. Okay. And she says it was 1130 PM when she was traveling East on it. It's blanked out, but it's Lewis river road. When she noted a man walking beside the road, the man was just west of uh, a road and on the north side of the road walking west. She recalled that I thought the man appeared strange because although the weather conditions were poor, the individual was wearing only dress type, white shirt and dark slacks. She described him as six feet tall, medium hair, dark, but fairly short and, you know, approximately 30 to 40. And she couldn't identify him, you know, if she saw a composite picture of him. And she said for all years she'd lived in Woodland, first time she'd seen anyone on Lewis River Road after dark. So that would be the next page in the FBI documents. That would be DB Cooper-8048. So the evidence is there. I mean, Cooper survived his jump. Okay. I definitely believe he did. And, and I see that that's becoming more, I've listened to a few of the podcasts and it seems that Tom Kay seems to believe he survived his jump. Uh, Bruce Smith seems to believe he survived his jump. So it's becoming a more uh, popular theory now that, you know, he didn't die in the woods, but he actually lived. Oh, yeah. Did you see uh, Marty Andrade's work on uh, World War II bailouts? Uh, yes, I did. And I think I may have uh, mentioned that in my book or, or referenced it because, you know, he's, he's definitely made some, 
some or done some good research here that shows that even people didn't have any training to speak of, you know, just jumped out of airplanes that were, you know, heading to a fiery crash and survived. Yeah, I really think that is the best evidence that that he survived the jump. Well, I'm I'm going with uh, what the witnesses said about seeing this man walking, you know, that night down Lewis River Road. Oh yeah, well that definitely is great great evidence he survived the jump. <laughs> so you know, I talked about logic. You know, mm-hmm. I talked about obviously this man has to think logically, and one of the key things. That, that came to me as I looked at this. Okay, so this man's jumped out of the airplane and, and come down to the ground. Now, as I looked at this, I, I saw that, you know, he could have jumped out anywhere, okay? But for some reason, he came down by a hydroelectric dam that's lit up like a Christmas tree at night. Uh, have you uh, seen the In Search Of uh, documentary with... Uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy narrating. I have. It's it's been quite a while since I've seen that one, but uh, I'm just going to play. We'll see if it comes through on the microphone. I'm just going to play one little segment from it because it's kind of interesting. Because this sort of made me think when I heard it. Is it okay if I play that? Yeah, absolutely. The FBI concluded that Cooper jumped in a four by six mile area near Merwin Dam. Merwin Dam. 313 feet high and 1,250 feet wide. It holds back the Lewis River in order to create Lake Merwin. When Cooper jumped, the dam was crowned with a series of brilliant lights. If Cooper could have caught some glimpse through the cloud layers, he would have been provided with an unmistakable landmark. He would have known exactly where he was. So I think that's pretty interesting. Absolutely. Okay. And that made me think a great deal about, uh, did this man come down by a hydroelectric dam because he was lucky? Or did he come down by this, you know, hydroelectric dam because he, it was all part of his plan. Okay. And so I looked at the flight path and if Cooper had jumped out six minutes before he did, in other words, instead of 8.11, he had jumped out at 8.05. Well, six minutes equates to about 18 miles because the plane's traveling, you know, the ground speed was normally 180 miles an hour. So that's three miles every minute. So I looked 18 miles, you know, to the north and west along the flight path. And it was a place called Pigeon Springs. And even today, when I look down, you know, in Google Earth, there's almost nothing there but logging roads and timber harvest. So if Cooper had a jump six minutes earlier and came down in Pigeon Springs, I would have said, you know, this man doesn't know what he's doing. But the fact that he came down by that hydroelectric dam, you know, where he could come through the clouds and see where he was, that was that was planned. I don't know how he actually, well, I conjectured in my book how he did it, but that's that's part of his plan was to come down by that hydroelectric dam. I wish there were nighttime aerial shots of the dam back then, but it's it's not like we had Google Earth in 1971. Right, right. So uh, 
that that you know sort of uh, made me realize you know this this man knew where he was coming down. He he had some kind of an avionics device, and this is where he was coming down. Okay. Now the other thing, as a uh, you know man of logic and looking at this, you know, as a, an intelligent man who's meticulously uh, planning this caper. How do you escape the drop zone? All right, you just can't come down and hitchhike. You know, everybody thinks, well, maybe he hitchhiked out of the woods, or he, he, you know, ditched the 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 loot, and then he, uh, you know, somehow got a ride or whatever. It, you can't you can't do this because you're just introducing more witnesses. Okay, so you need a way to escape the drop zone, and fortunately. Uh, in my experience from many years ago, I knew about a bank robbery that happened in Maine, and I lived in Maine at the time, that that had happened in 19, in fact, it happened on November 12th, 1971, just 12 days before Cooper hijacked the plane. Right. And there's actually a man who's written a book about it now. His name is Ron Chase. And the book is called The Great Mars Hill Bank Robbery. And Mars Hill is in northern Maine, you know, very remote part of Maine, a small town, you know, probably about like, you know, four or 5,000 people maybe. And they had a bank in town. And there was a, and I didn't know, know about this, this, this bank robbery until a few years after the fact. But I'll just give you a general rundown. This man was a Vietnam veteran. He went in, robbed the bank, uh, got away, uh, took off and went to Europe and lived the high life, you know, hanging around with aristocrats and, you know, drinking the best of wines and, you know, uh, meeting all kinds of beautiful women, et cetera. And finally, after about two years, the authorities caught up with him and arrested him and brought him back. And... When he came back to America, a man from the Bangor Daily News, which is a local newspaper in northern, you know, northern part of Maine, uh, went and interviewed him. And they ran a series of articles for about five days. You know, this is in 1973-74 time frame. And uh, a friend of mine had a subscription to the newspaper, and he brought it over, and he says, "You got to, you got to listen to this, okay." So I'll just tell you the story briefly. So this guy, Bernard Patterson was his name. He'd done several tours of duty in Vietnam and ended up, you know, being discharged, I believe. And he came back to northern Maine and he was pretty disillusioned with uh, civilian life. So he decided he was going to rob the local bank. So he puts on a disguise and he goes into the bank and there's an elderly woman there. And even though he's got a disguise on, she recognizes him. She knows who he is because, you know, it's a small town. And uh, he had a difficult time convincing her that he was serious, that he wanted to rob the bank. She thought he was joking. That's great. So finally, <laughs> so finally she realizes he's serious. So she gets a bank bag and starts putting money in it. Well, it's taking too long and he gets upset. So he puts the gun down on the counter and he goes, goes behind and helps her, you know, put money in another bag. <laughs> and so finally he gets all the money and he's got these two big bags of money and he drags them out behind the bank and down to a river where he had, a, I think, an inflatable raft waiting. And he goes to get in the raft. Now, this is November in northern Maine. There was snow on the ground and he gets to the river and he 
puts the bank bags in the raft while he tips over. And now the, the bags of money are waterlogged and he has a hell of a time getting them into the raft. But he finally, you know, gets everything situated and goes. And obviously he gets away. Okay. But one thing I always remembered from that story was, I mean, because it was humorous, but I thought, how clever of this guy. He's not taking a getaway car. He's using the river to escape. You see what I'm saying? Definitely. And uh, Ron Chase, I did speak with Ron, and he told me they set up a dragnet to try and, you know, uh, capture him from driving away. But obviously they never caught him because he wasn't on the roads. He had taken the river and, and, and escaped that way. So I always remembered that. So when I thought about Cooper coming down, and it's like, how is he going to escape the drop zone? I came back to this bank robbery in Myers Hill and remembered Bernard Patterson and how he used the river to get away. And when I thought of that and looked at Cooper, I realized that's what this man did. He used the river to escape because he doesn't have to worry about roadblocks and all that if he just has a boat there waiting for him and he can just go down the Lewis River to escape. Yeah, I think that's a, a great idea because being familiar with that area, if you are on the north side of the Lewis River, there aren't many places to cross over to the south side. Uh, yeah. From Ariel, I think there's one place in between Ariel and Woodland where you can cross the river and, and get south of there. So escaping on water would definitely be your best bet. Yeah, I, and that's why I ended up calling the book The Elusive D.B. Cooper because this was not just a, a land and air operation. It was a land, air, and sea operation, okay? And that's, <laughs> and that's how he got away. He just took the, the path that nobody thinks about. And he took it all the way to Tina Bar. And, and, you know, I, you know, at the time, the citizen sleuths say because of the rubber bands that the money had to arrive at Tina Bar within one year. Uh, I think Tom Kay in his recent podcast said it had to get there in more like one month. Mm-hmm. Well, I say it got there within hours of the hijacking because that was, that was Cooper's escape route down the Lewis River and then up the Columbia to Tina Bar. And the money that was there, just like he made a mistake and left his tie on the airplane, he had a hundred bundles of cash to deal with. You know, it was a cold, dark, rainy night. He lost a few bundles. You know, not, not that he intended to. He just, he probably dropped a few in, in the process of, you know, getting his boat back on the, uh, on his trailer or whatever, you know, however he was, you know, transporting it. He, he had his, he had his truck and trailer right there waiting. Could you imagine what's going through his mind at that time? Does he think that he got away with it at this point when he's on Tina Bar, or is he still is he still nervous? Well, you know, because you know, I tie this all together because I also come up with how he gets to uh, the airport without ever being, you know, and leaving no trace behind. Okay, because I basically say that Tina Bar was his base of operations, and that day earlier in the day he had he had two boats you know a like a 12 foot aluminum boat and then probably something like an inflatable a zodiac as a, as i think is the brand name for you know one of the styles 
Mm-hmm. And I basically say, and I mean, this is just who knows exactly what he had for bolts, but I'm just saying that he, he, uh, you know, used the Zodiac, let's say, to get to the airport and then took off and he just left it tied up right there, you know, alongside the river somewhere. And then after he came down in his uh, parachute, he had an aluminum boat that he had brought up earlier in the day, taken off the trailer and just tied up alongside the river. So the boat was there waiting for him. So after he came down in his parachute, he just had to walk to the aluminum boat and there provisions and warm, dry clothes waited for him, everything he, he would need, okay? And then he just went down the river, uh, you know, to the Columbia and back up to Tina Bar where he, you know, his truck and trailer were waiting. And then once he was all uh, packed up and ready there at Tina Bar, he just had to go back to the airport and pick up the Zodiac, deflate it, you know, put it in the uh, boat and and leave. How do you think he was able to find his boat after landing on the ground? So he jumps out of the plane, lands on the ground. How does he get to his boat from there? Well, I... If this man meticulously planned this, you know, adventure, uh, he would have uh, spent time up in the aerial, you know, Washington vicinity, you know, hiking around and looking at the places. I actually think he may have intended to land across the river in, uh, trying to think of the name of the the town across the river. Uh, Amboy or Yakult? Yeah, yeah, one one of those is right across the river because if you look at, at least from Google Earth, there are more fields over there. Definitely. Okay, I mean a lot of a lot of open fields, so I thought that might have been his real, you know, uh, targeted landing spot, but the winds were probably a little bit more brisk than he had anticipated and so we ended up over and across the river in aerial somewhere. That, that's that's you know what I saw. That's that's in fact I didn't think that that's what he was doing. I was just sort of saying, how would I do this? And that's what I was, you know, doing as I went through all this. And then once I finally got to a point where I said, you know, this could work, you know, I had one of those oh shit moments. Was like, what am I thinking? This is this is what Cooper did. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, close to it, right? Right. And so it's just that I had, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, thought of the same plan that he probably did. And and it just brings everything together. Now you understand how Cooper got to the Portland airport undetected. And he didn't need to stay in motel rooms or hotel rooms because, uh, you know, he just camped out. Uh, he uh, um, was seen coming down, you know, in the town of Ariel. So it's hard to def- refute that evidence that people saw him that night. And then... Uh, how did the money get to Tina Bar and get there in a short period of time? Well, it's easy. He just dropped it. Just, the, you know, he lost it just the way he left the tie behind on the airplane, which is sort of a, a you know, a mental error that he made. Well, the same thing happened with, uh, you know, a few bundles of the money. He's getting this money all uh, put away in his, his car, truck, whatever he has. And, uh, you know, he drops a few. That's all. Do you think the bomb was real? Personally, I don't. Um, remember, this man gave his name as Dan Cooper. And obviously, you're familiar with the Dan Cooper comics. Definitely. And, and if you look at Dan Cooper, he was a man who took on daring missions in the name of freedom and justice. All right. So this man had become, you know, in some way, Dan Cooper, 
taking on a daring mission in the name of justice, because that's what his grudge was all about. He wanted justice. So after your book comes out, how long after that did you land on someone? Well, what I, what I did is after I finished my book, I could see, you know, what happened. I could see what this man did. Okay. So then I said, all right, uh, I got to look for a man who's got an intense grudge. Okay. And, uh, see, see who I can find. And I started probably the, the furthest back I went was the, uh, Kent state massacre. If you're familiar with that. I'm not familiar with that. Okay. It happened actually in 1970 in the spring of 1970. And there were a group of students who were protesting the uh, Vietnam war and the national guard was called in. Cause I think they tended to get violent or whatever, you know, break windows or whatever they probably did. And something happened and the national guard started to fire on the protesters and four students were killed. Uh, you can, you can look it up, but so I, 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 looked at the family of the victims to see if there was somebody who fit Cooper's description, but I couldn't find anyone. So then I went on and found that there were two major airline crashes in 1971. One was an Alaska Airlines flight that went down in Juneau, and it was in inclement weather, and the uh, nav aids weren't working properly, and I think maybe the pilots didn't identify you know, one of the nav aides, you know, properly or something like that. But anyway, it crashed and everyone was killed. And then there was another one in California, and I believe this was a used aircraft. The other one was Alaska Airlines, and the other one was used aircraft. I think it was a DC-8, and it was struck by a military jet, a Phantom F-4, uh, that was out just sort of hot-dogging around. And everyone was killed in that crash except the co-pilot of the F-4. He was able to eject and, and he lived. So I started looking at all the uh, um, casualty lists and, you know, checking uh, the families to see if there was, you know, somebody who would have had a grudge and, um, you know, could have been Cooper. Uh, I wasn't having a lot of success. Uh, then I found about found out about this incident that happened in uh, well it was a hijacking that started in started in Tennessee and ended up in Jacksonville, Florida. And five eight November is what it's referred to as. And I was intrigued because this was an incident where. Uh, a man kidnaps his uh, estranged wife. He has a plane waiting for him, a charter plane waiting for him at the airport in Nashville. He uh, pulls a gun, tells the pilots, you know, we're, we're going and that's it. And so they take off. And I think they were originally going to Atlanta, but they changed change his mind, decided he wanted to go to uh, the Bahamas. So the pilots convinced him they were going to have to land in Jacksonville to refuel. So when they landed in Jacksonville, the FBI was waiting. Now, an interesting thing, uh, the woman on the plane was named Susan Lackage, and her mother happened to be listening 
to the police scanner and heard about this hijacking. And I think they announced the, the license plate number of the car that was, you know, left at the airport. And she recognized it as being that of her, you know, her son-in-law. So she called, she gets in touch with the FBI and she tells the FBI agent, and I think his name was Roger Myers. She tells him, you know, my son-in-law is a dangerous neurotic, okay, who always carries a gun. Just comply with his demands and everything will be okay. So the FBI at this point knows what's going on. However, the agents in Jacksonville will say that they never received this information. Okay. So the plane comes down. There are actually five people on board. Uh, the pilot, Nicole Pilot, uh, Susan Lackich, and her estranged husband, George Giff, and a man named Bobby Wayne Wallace, who sort of got coerced into helping uh, George Giff. He thought he was just going to go to the airport and drive his car home, but then he sort of got you know wrapped up in this whole situation. I hate it when my friends get me involved in a hijacking. <laughs> what do they think? <laughs> so um, the plane lands in Jacksonville, as I said, and the FBI was waiting. And the FBI decided to play hardball, and they said there will be no fuel. Uh, you know, shut off your engines. You know, this is over. And the pilot's coming over the uh, uh, radio saying, pleading for his life, saying, please, for the sake of some lives, because we get some fuel. I think this guy's serious, okay? And so George Giff, who is the hijacker, sends the co-pilot off to try and negotiate with the FBI. Well, the FBI doesn't even talk to him. They just grab him and throw him in the back seat of a car, okay? And then he sends off this man, Bobby Wayne Wallace, to see if he can negotiate something with the FBI. Well, same situation. And so the FBI just keeps demanding that, you know, this man give up and come out. And they go out with their guns and they shoot out the tires in the airplane. And the pilot had one engine idling, the other one shut down so he could get refueled on the side where the engine was shut down. The uh, FBI pumps bullets into the engine until basically it shuts down. Uh, the hijacker at this point realizes he's trapped. So he shoots and kills the pilot, shoots and kills you know, Susan, and then shoots and kills himself. And it's become known as, you know, uh, a lesson in how not to deal with hostage situations. Yeah, it didn't turn out the way they wanted, that's for sure. Right. So Joe Lackich, you know, I, I saw this incident and I thought, boy, I could see where somebody could have a grudge about this. And I went and I looked at the pilot and his family, uh, his name was Brent Downs, but I couldn't find anybody who fit Cooper's description in his family. His father had actually uh, passed away in 1969, so it wouldn't have been his father. So I just left uh, 5, 8 November and went back to the airline crashes. Later, I got thinking about it and I said, you know, I ought to look at this 5, 8 November again. So I went back and I found... Uh, the son of the aircraft owner. Okay. His name was Mac brothers, the third. And I saw a picture of him online and I said, you know, I could see how people could, you know, see him and then draw a sketch that looked like, you know, the DB Cooper sketch. 
And then I went into it further and I found out he was an intelligent man. He graduated in his high school class and, you know, the salutatorian of his high school class. He played football, so he was athletic. Uh, just, and I was told he was very good friends with the pilot, Brent Downs. So I thought, you know, maybe. And I, I really thought for a while, this is probably in the, I don't know, November timeframe. But this is November 19, I mean, uh, 2016. And I just couldn't find, you know, I ended up talking with people who knew him and they said, you know, well, you know, he wasn't trained in aviation. You know, his father owned the aircraft company, but he was a businessman and just rode on the plane. He really wasn't a pilot or knew anything about, you know, aviation and, you know, aircraft procedures and so forth. So ultimately, I had to leave 5-8 November again. So I'm back to airline crashes and this, and this is where the spiritual guidance starts to come back in again, because I'm halfway through all the uh, victims on these airline crashes. And Darren, I just like, I'm just hitting dead ends, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm sure there's a ton of people to go through if you're doing it that way too. Right. And then, you know, the other option is what about... Uh, a man who may have lost his son in the Vietnam War. And I'm like, oh boy, how am I going to find all those people? Okay. So the odds were getting to be to the point it was insurmountable. Okay. I just didn't see that I was going to be able to find, you know, a man with a grudge who fit his description. But one afternoon, I went to bed and I lay down for a while and took a nap. And when I woke up, a word came into my mind and it was Kegel. And I had to spell it K-E-I-G-L-E. So I started searching and there were people, you know, you can find a guy named John Kegel. Okay. I thought, no, nah, that's, that's not what this would mean. And I kept searching and I found some obscure website and it said, Kegel is Samoan, and the Samoan language means girl. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this is about a girl, okay? Not, you know, the victim was a girl. So I started looking at some of the flight attendants on some of the crashes, okay? And I didn't come up with anything, you know, right off. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. There was a woman killed on the 5-8 November uh, crash, or, you know, hijacking. And I went back and I searched on Lackage and I found that Joe Lackage was very verbal about how the FBI had uh, made a gross error in the way they handled, you know, the 5-8 November hijacking. Yeah, I would even describe it as bold. Yes. And uh, supposedly he even said the FBI has blood on its hands. Okay. And... uh the FBI came back and said, well, uh, you know, we handled this uh, incident to perfection. And if it was to happen again, we'd do it just the same way we did before. Okay. Then there were lawsuits involved because, and basically it was the owner of the aircraft, I think, who really instigated the lawsuits. But I think because he wanted money for his plane. But I think the, uh, the legal team said, hey, we should bring in the Lackage family and the Downs family 
and also have them sue for wrongful death. So this all became a lawsuit. And this is where, you know, the rhetoric from the FBI got even worse. Okay. And uh, uh, Janie Downs uh, describes that, you know, she would get harassing and threatening phone calls in the middle of the night because, you know, she was filing this lawsuit against the FBI. So more than likely, the Lackage family got some of the same treatment. So I say at some point, Joe just said, you know, I'm not going to let these bastards get away with murder. And he started to plan his, his revenge. I actually looked up the amount they got and from the lawsuit. They got like 55 grand. Yes. Yeah, they didn't get a lot. And that's because Susan, although she had a, uh, a BA and master's degree in education, hadn't found a job at that time as a teacher. So she was working as a switchboard operator at a local uh, hotel. And, you know, she wasn't making great money. And so they had to sort of weigh that in as to, well, how much money would she make if she, you know, kept working for so many years and so forth. And you're right. It didn't turn out to be a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not for like, hey, you know, something happened to one of my family members. Give me a bunch of money. But the amount of money seemed almost offensive. Yeah, because that didn't that award didn't happen for three years or so. I don't remember the exact time frame, but, you know, the case wasn't settled for three years. But the other thing that happened uh, when the lawsuit was filed against the FBI, the FBI, the first thing they do is say, oh, you know, we're the FBI. You can't sue us. I mean, you know, we're we're just, you know, part of the government. Well, that got shot down by, you know, by the judge. And then the next thing they did, they said to the uh, Lackage family, well, gee, uh, you know, Susan had a daughter who was like 20 months old and uh, um, you've adopted her. Well, under the laws of adoption, you know, once you adopt a child, you uh, uh, assume all uh, responsibility for their welfare. So you can't sue us because you've adopted her. Okay. And, and of course, you know, they don't, they don't bring out the fact that they had to adopt her because she was orphaned. <laughs> right. Yeah. You guys chose <laughs> to do this. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, the FBI were arrogant and not very nice people. So then your investigation of Joe Lackich really, really begins. That's, that's when I started to try and find out more about Joe. And so I was able to find some of his family members, okay? And uh, one of them told me, yeah, he was five foot 11 and he uh, was always in great shape. You know, you could tell he was in the military. And another interesting thing was at the age of 18, he spoke fluent Serbian, okay? His parents were immigrants from uh, Croatia. So it was kind of interesting that he had this lingual ability. Another family member told me that he had dark hair and dark eyes, just like, you know, all the rest of his siblings. All of them had, you know, dark hair and dark eyes. Okay. Uh, At the time of the hijacking, he was 50 years old. Okay. So when you look at the physical description of Cooper, you know, the uh, bulletin that came out shortly after Mm -hmm. the hijacking, there isn't one thing in the physical description that doesn't fit. Okay, his height, his his build, his age, his hair color, his hairstyle, everything 
and I mean everything. I even talked with a woman who was a friend of Susan's, okay? And when they were in high school, uh, Susan and some of her friends would go over to Susan's house because Joe's house was right on the Cumberland River in Nashville, and he had a boat. And they would all go out on the boat and take turns water skiing. And she told me that Joe had a darker complexion. However, uh, after he'd been in the sun, it was really noticeable how, how much darker he was. So even the complexion, uh, you know, fits. So again, and the physical certain. The other thing is uh, these people who knew Joe Lockich and they look at the, uh, I'm going to call it, maybe the third sketch of D.B. Cooper, the one where he's got sort of more of a widow's mm-hmm. peak and his hair's combed back. They look at that and they say, boy, that FBI sketch sure looks like Joe. So, again, from an appearance standpoint, well, everything fit. Let me ask you this, Robert. When you first started looking into Joe, how excited did you get on yeah. on the first few things? Well, this matches. This matches. The appearance matches. How excited and honed in on him did you get? Well, at this point, you know, where everything was fitting, I I obviously really got focused on Joe, okay? I, I don't want to say I was excited because I'm, you know, just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good that this could be the man, but by the same token, excited isn't the right word because... I, I you, you probably notice in my book, I don't call this man a criminal, okay? And I refuse to call him a criminal. He was a man who was pushed over the edge, you know, uh, in his quest to get justice. So at this point, you were still skeptical and, and trying to rule him out more than rule him in. And that and that's how I, I got there. I mean, I ruled out everybody else, and I probably looked at, you know, one or 200, you know, one to 200 individuals by the point, by the time I got to Joe Lockage, okay? And some of them are easy to, to rule out. You know, you might find a man and say, oh, well, yeah, his, his you know, wife died in this plane crash. And you, you know, look at uh, uh, the particulars and you find out he was an accountant and he had no military experience and he never uh, uh, did any skydiving or anything. Uh, you just, you know, he, did, he, work, he wouldn't work any place where he would get titanium particles in his tie. Uh, just none of it. Uh, came together. So you could just sort of eliminate that person. You know, some others you'd find, like you say, height wise, okay, this guy's five foot four, you know, he's not D.B. Cooper and so forth. But Joe, everything just kept coming together and it continued. I mean, that was just the appearance category. So where'd you look into next? I ended up talking with another family member and I asked what he did for work. And the response was, uh, in 1971, he worked for a company called Nashville Electronics, and he was a production supervisor. This was got to be early January because it was just after uh, the Travel Channel had brought out the Macron analysis where, you know, they had found these rare earth elements and basically said D.B. Cooper worked in electronics. This all came started to come together. <laughs> that definitely fits. When you were talking to a family member, did you tell them, hey, I'm looking into him as possibly D- being D.B. Cooper? Well, I would talk to them at first and say, you know, I, 
you know, was doing some research on this 5-8 November incident and so forth, and we would have a discussion. But I'm not a <clears throat> one of these cutthroat journalists who just wants to, you know, uh, uh, rake people over the coals and deceive them and tell them all kinds of things. So after we had talked for a while and everything, and I would say, you know, I believe that, you know, your relative Joe was D.B. Cooper. And I mean, most of them were fluid. I mean, they couldn't believe it. Okay. And they got to the point, nobody wanted to talk to me, uh, which, and you know, I can understand. <clears throat> and that's why I'm glad I can do this podcast because, uh, you know, I want people to understand that I, this man is not uh, quote unquote a criminal. Okay. It's, I, I compare him in my book to the people who carried out the uh, Boston Tea Party. Okay. I mean, I'm sure the, the the British considered those guys criminals, right? Boarding a ship and throwing crates of tea into the ocean, all right? <laughs> but in our history, you know, they're patriots, right? Because they're protesting, you know, taxation without representation. So Standing up know, for what they believe is right. Right. It all depends on your perspective, okay? And again, my perspective is this man was not a criminal. And <laughs> when we wrap things up, you'll... You'll, you'll uh, see what my summation comes to. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I found out. Uh, you know, I told you he spoke fluent Serbian. I found out that in the late 40s, uh, he was in the army, okay? And he taught Serbian language at the Army School of Language in Monterey, California. And I spoke with one of his students, and I only have one picture of Joe, and that's from the uh, Gettysburg College yearbook. I think it's like 1951 when he was an instructor of military science. So I was able to show him that picture. And he says, oh, yeah, that's that's my instructor, Joe. And, you know, Joe was, you know, the students liked him because he was sort of laid back and, and easygoing. And they, you know, they liked his, his temperament and his, you know, sense of humor. So uh, I, I asked him, I said, you know, Joe obviously speaks English. You know, he can speak Serbian. I said, do you think he could speak German? And he said, well, I don't know if he did or not. And I said, well, you know, in 19, according to his military records, in uh, mid, from mid-57 to mid-1960, he was stationed in Nuremberg, Germany. And he said, oh, for certain then, he said he would have picked up German. So that, and some of the people I talked to said every now and then he would say something in German. So there comes the D.B. Cooper connection. I mean, the Dan Cooper connection. Because not only could this man be in Germany and see the Dan Cooper comics, he could read them and identify with the, with the hero because he would have been able to speak German and, you know, the comic books were printed in German. Yeah, that comic book connection is is pretty incredible that he would choose the name Dan Cooper. I just, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, uh, the gate agent who, uh, you know, wrote out his ticket for him, asked him his name and he said, Cooper, Dan Cooper. That's how he, that's how he gave his name. <laughs> that's badass. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, then I saw that connection. Okay, there's the Dan Cooper connection. The uh, man was multilingual, 
uh, spent three years in Germany. And if you look at Larry Carr uh, several years ago on the FBI website, you know, Larry's profile was, you know, this man was in the Air Force, he thought, okay, but he was stationed in Europe where he would have seen, you know, the Dan Cooper comics. And sure enough, uh, you know, Dan, uh, uh, Joe Lakich was uh, stationed in Germany for, for three years in the late 50s. The other thing is he had 20 years in the military, retired as a major. And in the military, his military records, the ones that non-family members can get, which is what I have, uh, he was listed as an S-4 for his last 10 years in the service. And that stood for staff level and four was logistics. So I think this man knew how to plan a mission. Did he have any parachute experience in the military? That is a question, and I'm not sure if he did. Now, I, I get the impression that he did a lot of training during his years in the service, okay? Uh, he uh, And that's from some of the family members who knew him. But it's also you look at the, uh, at the places where he was stationed. You know, he went to the Gettysburg College. He's in the ROTC program, so he's training students on military, in military science, okay? He's teaching the Serbian language at the Monterey, uh, in Monterey, California, at the Army School of Language. He goes to Officers Candidate School after that. And then he goes to, I think it's called like Indian Gap Town or something like that in Pennsylvania. And when I read up on that, in the early 50s, they were training men for service in uh, Korea. And he actually goes to Korea, I think, for a year or two. Okay. Then he returns and he goes to Camp McCoy in eastern Wisconsin, I mean, western Wisconsin. Now, it's kind of interesting. He was there for about two years, and uh, I'm guessing that he might have liked it because when uh, Cooper was on the airplane talking with Tina, uh, he asked where she was from, and she said, well, I, you know, originally from Pennsylvania, but now I live in Minneapolis, and Cooper replies, Minneapolis, Minnesota, nice country. So uh, the Fort McCoy is only 150 miles from, from Minneapolis. So again, we see the connection. So then it comes down to the particles on the tie. Obviously the citizen sleuths have done a lot of work in this area. And uh, Nashville Electronics made capacitors. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they're small electronic devices that sort of store electricity. And I sort of looked at them, you know, they're similar to like in a hydraulic circuit, you might have an accumulator. The idea is they soften the, the spikes and voltage and, you know, uh, the uh, uh, rapid changes in, in energy flow, okay, that happen as, as the circuits change. And uh, they made capacitors and essentially Nashville Electronics made what's called electrolytic capacitors. Uh, are you familiar with those? I'm not. Some capacitors are just made with uh, metal uh, foil, and basically every other one is charged differently. Like, you know, the first one's positive, the second one's negative, the next one's positive, and so forth. And what happens is when you put voltage on these, the charge builds up on the plates, okay, and that's how it stores energy. Uh, what, uh, these ones had was they had paper in between the foil 
and it was usually impregnated with some kind of electrolyte. So these things actually acted like a little battery and chemistry was very important, okay? So I started to do some research on these capacitors and I found patents that, you know, went back to the day that were very interesting, okay? And one of them was awarded to Nashville, uh, to General Electric, who was a customer of Nashville Electronics. And the patent number is 3548265. It's called Porous Anode Capacitor. And in the description, it says, a porous anode capacitor having a titanium metal casing, which serves as a cathode, will not fail due to a dielectric film degradation inducted by cathode plating as a result of reverse volt voltage. Forming the capacitor casing of titanium also permits a bonding thereof a titanium to glass closure. So it's all about a uh, capacitor that uses titanium, okay, as its uh, material. And down in the claims, uh, they talk about uh, a film-forming metal of the casing consisting essentially of titanium and said electrolyte consisting essentially of lithium chloride, okay, which is a salt. And if you look up lithium chloride, it's made by combining two other materials, and I can't remember what they were now, like barium chloride and, and something else. And those are some of the metals or the materials that were find, found on Cooper's tie. That's an incredible connection. Right. I wasn't aware that you could link titanium directly to Nashville Electronics. Yeah, well, that's, that's where it is, okay? Now, if you look at these electrolytic capacitors, you've got to realize they're a lot like batteries. So you think of a battery in your car, it's lead acid, right? Well, it's pretty corrosive stuff. Okay, and the same thing in these electrolytic capacitors. So that's why they were made out of corrosion resistant materials. And if you look at the Citizens Loose website, they talk about these. You know, the, the materials they found were uh, aluminum, and they weren't just a regular aluminum, it was a 5000 series aluminum, which is sometimes called marine grade aluminum. Okay, because of its corrosion resistance. You have stainless steel, obviously, uh, used in. Uh, surgical instruments and in cutlery. I mean, stainless steel is a corrosion-resistant material. And then pure titanium, the, what's usually called grade one or grade two, not the aircraft alloy, which I think is grade five, is, uh, is a common material. Now, I knew about these materials because of my work in the power industry, okay? And when you have a steam turbine, uh, the steam comes in the turbine at very high pressures, you know, could be several thousand PSI, and it expands down through the turbine, and it finally gets down to the point that it's only about one PSI absolute or about 14 PSI vacuum, okay? So it's negative pressure, and that low-pressure steam has to be condensed, so it goes into a device called the condenser. Well... The materials that are used in the tubes in the condenser are typically uh, brass, stainless steel, and even titanium, okay? But I looked at the history of titanium. They didn't really start using it in power plants until around 1972. But I figured, hey, you know, there must be somebody else who demonstrated this. And 
Um, that's when I thought of Bremerton, Washington, because in Bremerton, they overhaul and work on, you know, nuclear submarines. So I thought that that could have been some of the test beds where some of the early heat exchanges, you know, were made from with titanium tubes. Have you but, presented your findings to Tom Kay to, just to see what he thinks? Yeah, you know, I called Tom and talked with him, and he's kind of, he doesn't want to talk to people too much, it seems. So he's like, well, I can't see how, you know, uh, titanium would be used in the capacitor industry. And that's, you know, he didn't have an interest. Uh, I wrote a letter, I think, to Alan Stone, because I think Alan probably knows more about materials and their usage, and sent that to him. Now, another patent that uh, I found of interest was awarded to Nashville Electronics. Now, let me see if I can find that one. It's a U.S. patent, uh, 3099069. It's called a method of capacitor manufacturer, and it is assigned to Nashville Electronics, a corporation of Tennessee. Okay. And it talks about having a casing that's cylindrical, and then the internals of the capacitor are put in this casing. And then there's a plug that's put in, you know, uh, one top of so this, this casing is formed like a, like a can. And then the internals of the capacitor are put in, and then there's a plug that's put on top. And then the top part of the casing is crimped over with a machine. You understand what I'm saying by crimped over? It's like folded over. Yep. And that holds the plug in. Okay. Well, uh, you go to uh, the Citizen Sleuth's website, and they have this titanium particle. It's got a green color. And then they show this reddish color up close to it, and that's been smeared into the titanium, okay? Well, there is where it happens, okay? There's this titanium casing. They put the internals of the capacitor in. They put in the plug. And then this patent talks about them a device which comes and crimps the end of the uh, capacitor can and, and folds it over so it holds everything together, okay? And there's where that particle comes from, okay? A piece of titanium breaks off the casing, and the tool that, uh, you know, crimps the casing is probably made out of a 400 stainless, 400 series stainless steel because 300 series stainless is the very corrosion-resistant stainless, 400 series stainless is like a 12 chrome steel, and that's used more for tools and shit because it uh, can be easily hardened, okay? So there, there's a very viable explanation for where that particle came from. Absolutely. Okay. So, is, again, uh, so the tie evidence matches up. So now I'm sitting here and I'm looking at all this. Here's a man okay, who has the military experience, okay? So he would know about planning. He knows about logistics, okay? Uh, he probably, uh, if he has to know about moving men and material from point A to point B, he probably knows about aircraft and when they can fly and when they have to fly under instrument flight rules and other such. Uh, this man's one in a hundred. He's probably even more than that, but let's just say he's one in a hundred because of his knowledge base from the military, Okay. And then number two, his workplace, okay? All these particles that are on his tie can be tied back to this capacitor manufacturing at Nashville Electronics, okay? And obviously in a, in a working environment, 
you're not going to be around lathes with a conventional tie because, you know, it's disastrous if the tie gets caught in the machinery. So that would be disastrous. Yeah. So you have to wear a clip on tie because, you know, that's that's safety demands it. All right. Then uh, the D, the Dan Cooper connection. Here's a man who's multilingual based in Germany for three years, uh, can read the Dan Cooper comic books. You know, there, there's your connection. Okay. And then appearance. I told you, everything fits. Okay. His eye color, his hair color, his age, you know, his complexion. There isn't one uh, facet of the description that doesn't fit. Okay. The physical description of Dan Cooper, you know, from Joe Lackage. So uh, that's more than one in a hundred. But again, all these things, the, you know, the, uh, the Thai evidence, the Dan Cooper connection, you know, the military experience, the appearance, uh, you know, if we just use one in a hundred, okay, they're all mutually exclusive uh, characteristics. I mean, we're already at a hundred to the fourth, okay? But now we got to add in the factor of this man has a grudge and it's going to be a grudge so severe that he's willing to put his life on the line and jump out of an airplane you know, in in a in a snowstorm in in a in a rainstorm at night, okay. So you add that in as one in a hundred. This this man's one in a billion. That's just just like the citizen sleuths did their probability analysis that the tie on the plane belonged to Cooper. That's the probability analysis that uh, Joe Lackage was DB Cooper. Did you were you able to talk to anyone at Nashville Electronics who worked there around the time? I haven't. Uh, you know, they, they were in business in the 60s and the early 70s. I think they merged with another company. But what happened is the Japanese just sort of took over the market. And, you know, a lot of the electronics component manufacturing in this country just went by the wayside. Gosh, I would be so curious if he, you know, was at work a few days later and people were like, oh, yeah, he was limping after Thanksgiving because... He said he got into a car accident or something, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, you know, exactly what happened to this man between October 4th, 1971, when his daughter was killed and let's just say the end of the year, Christmas or something. Okay. That's one thing I've had a difficult time finding. I did talk to one woman who was a friend of Susan's and she went over to visit uh, Joe and his wife. Uh, sometime after Susan was killed, she couldn't remember if it was a week or a month, just she went over and all she remembered is that Joe was sick and he couldn't come to the door. That's what his wife said. I, I can't find anything more. So I, I'm not sure he continued to work, you know, at least for a portion of the time after Susan was killed. Uh, I was told that he later went on and worked for a plumbing supply uh, house. So I get the impression he didn't go back to Nashville Electronics. Well, he definitely has a good reason not to, aside from the Cooper hijacking. Right. Have you ever spoken to Susan's child? Uh, I tried, uh, but she... uh, uh, knew who I was, you know, basically realized who I was and said, please don't contact me again. So, so I haven't. Do you think there are people that know for a fact that Joe did it? Well, let me, let me tell you this. I don't think anybody knew about it. I think he did this all by himself. 
And in my book, I say that, you know, this man had a grudge, but it was his grudge and his grudge alone. He couldn't ask a neighbor or a friend or a relative to basically risk their lives, you know, helping him. Because if he comes down in his parachute and there's somebody there to pick him up, but the FBI is on their tail, you know, they're going to shoot first and ask questions later. So, you, you know, my feeling is that this, and everybody who I talked to said that Joe was, you know, a great guy, just a really nice guy. Okay. So that's, that's just him. And if you look at what he did, and I've heard you talk about this in the other podcasts, he never, he didn't hurt anyone. Okay. He didn't, uh, you know, cause any injuries or anything like that. And he really was sort of a nice guy, you know, he even ordered meals for the crew for the flight, you know, to Reno. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something I, I, I want people to know about this, that you say, you know, hijacking or air pirate. He physically hurt no one doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And he was described. Now, let me tell you about one man who who knew Joe, who was uh, basically... Uh, uh, you know, a friend of the family. He was at the wedding between Susan and George Giff, and he was a pallbearer at Susan's funeral. Okay. So he knew Joe for a number of years. And when I asked him about Joe, he said, well, he said he was a very quiet man, but when he spoke, he was extremely polite. Okay. That was his demeanor. So I told him about what I thought, and he was intrigued, okay? And he looked to see if he had any pictures of Joe, but he didn't. And he, uh, uh, anyway, was interested. And he certainly could see how Joe looked like, you know, the sketches of D.B. Cooper. He knew of Joe's military uh, uh, experience, and supposedly he had a very successful career in the military. And uh, he was familiar, you know, he could, he could see that Joe could have a grudge. All right. That's very easy to see. (laughs) Right. So some, some months after, uh, you know, I first contacted this man, uh, I found the, the uh, documents from the FBI that said, okay, he hijacked the plane because he had a grudge. And so I sent him, you know, those documents. And he said, yep, he says that, that you know, that could be him. And then I came up with who has been avenged by D.B. Cooper. Okay. We sit and uh, uh, after 47 and a half years now, you know, we can look back and say, okay, this man had a grudge. Who did he, who did he, get revenge on. Okay. Who is he avenged? All right. And, you know, some people say it was the U S military, but I I don't think we can look at a timeline and say, you know, the military was doing great until 1971 when DB Cooper struck and then nobody would go in the military. Or I I don't think, you know, we can find, you know, similar things about Boeing aircraft, you know, okay. Boeing aircraft, you know, had troubles in 71, but I don't think we can link it to DB Cooper. It has to be linked to, you know, other issues like the SST program. And even the airline itself, uh, yeah, they paid the ransom, but they got 90% of it back from their insurance company. 
And I think if anything, D.B. Cooper actually helped the airline because Northwest Airlines showed that they were willing to do what it took to protect the passengers. So I, I can't see as, you know, D.B. Cooper got any revenge against the, you know, the uh, Northwest Airlines. But what about the FBI? That is a great point, Bill. That's a great point. The FBI point. expended tens of thousands of man hours on this uh, case. They considered over a thousand suspects and spent millions of dollars and they could never solve it. Okay. So I say if anybody has been avenged by D.B. Cooper, it is the FBI. And then you have to ask yourself, who would have more of a grudge against the FBI than than Joe Lackage? Now, I told this to the man, you know, from Nashville who knew Joe. And, you know, it was pretty powerful. He says, well, you know, he says, you make a good point there, but I don't know. And I said, well, let me send you two other documents. And, you know, one of these documents was that Cooper was very soft-spoken, okay? And I think that may have been an Alice Hancock's interview, very soft-spoken, okay? It's in other places, too. Uh, the gate agent said he had a soft voice. Um, or the ticket agent, I guess we'd say. Uh, the other uh, thing was... Uh, and the remarks after the description, after a few months, they added in very polite at all times. So I sent this off, you know, to this man from Nashville who, you know, knew Joe for at least five years. And he saw that and he said, that's him. He said, a, a man with a soft voice and polite at all, you know, very polite at all times. He says, no doubt now. He says, it was him. So, uh, he wasn't a believer at first, but, but he is now. And it's because everything comes together. You understand what I'm saying? I, I can't find anything to rule this man out. Not a single thing. No, no. So, you know, again, the probability analysis, he's one in a billion. Why do you think he chose Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle? Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. I, I didn't bring that up. Um, you know... They're on the plane, and I'm going to sort of recreate what I think the conversation went like. But Cooper's in the back of the airplane with Tina, and, you know, they're having a conversation. And I think Tina starts to get a little comfortable with this man. She realizes he's probably not looking to, you know, blow everybody up. And so at one point, she asks him, you know, why did you choose to hijack our airplane? Okay. And he replies, I chose to hijack your airplane because I have a grudge to settle. And then Tina, you know, inquisitively asks, oh, do you have a grudge against our airline? And Cooper laughs. And he says, I don't have a grudge against your airline. I think he gets a little quiet at this point and says, I just have a grudge. And then he's quiet for a few moments. And he says, your flight suited my time, place, and plans. Now, I thought about that comment, okay? So time, you can see what he's doing there. He's hijacking a plane that leaves Portland at three o'clock. So by the time they get to Seattle, and he said he wanted everything by 5 p.m. So he's on the ground at 5 p.m. in Seattle. They refuel the plane, he takes off. He's jumping out under the cover of darkness. That's 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 part of his time uh, uh, stipulation, okay? And then his plans. Obviously, this man has plans. 
And, you know, that says to me, this guy is pretty calculating because he says time, place, and plans. But place, what was the, what was the significance to place? Okay, why, why isn't he hijacking a plane in uh, Kansas City or Miami? Why, why Portland? Or Nashville to Jacksonville. Oh, yeah, Nashville to Jacksonville. Why, why you know, Portland, okay? And there are actually two things that, that I have found that make place significant, okay? The first is the revelation I had, you know, about this man. How does he get out of the drop zone? He goes by the river. Okay, and if you look at this area around Portland, the whole uh, everything is connected by uh, by waterways. Okay, navigable waterways connect the airport to the drop zone. That makes place very important. Okay, but the other thing is uh, there's a man named uh, Mike Machat. Okay, and he's an aviation expert. I've seen him on, uh, I think it may have been the Smithsonian Channel talking about different types of aircraft. Okay, and he's a very accomplished artist. And you may have seen this a picture of the Northwest 727 flying along. It's a painting uh, flying, and it shows a man, you know, who's just jumped out of the back of the aircraft. Well, Mike Machat wrote an article. Uh, and it was titled, Did He Get Away? And I think the website was called airlineratings.com, something like that. But Mike looks at this and he said, look at the terrain in the area. You know, you've got uh, mountains off to the east. You've got uh, Mount Rainier. You've got, uh, well, back then, uh, uh, Mount St. Helens was not over 9,000 feet. Mount Adams, you know, Mount Hood. Uh, when he said he wanted to go to Reno at 10,000 feet or less, there's, there's no other choices. He went there by yeah, the, I've heard you know, that. The, by the, default. That stipulation forces them into Victor 23. Victor 23, exactly. This man didn't have to say, here's the route I want to fly. Okay. All he had to do was, was say where he was going and where he needed to go. And in fact, I think I saw somewhere that... Uh, um, the route was actually picked by the, you know, air traffic controls computer. Okay. It just picked Victor 23 is the natural way to go. So there's another place, another instance where place comes into play because there's a unique terrain in this area so that he doesn't have to specify where he wants to go. He just by default goes down Victor 23. Were there any other connections between Joe and the Pacific Northwest? Well, uh, again, you know, I, I don't have the specifics, but he was in the uh, National Guard in Chicago. That's where he was born and raised, in Chicago. And he uh, uh, was in the National Guard, and his unit was called up in March of uh, uh, 1941 about eight months before Pearl Harbor. And what I read was that those units went to, uh, I think, Fort Ord or something in California. But then as part of their training, they went up to Longview, Washington, because I think they may have had an artillery range up there. So he would have, that probably would have been his first exposure to the Pacific Northwest would have been, you know, when he's about uh, 20 years old, uh, you know, just in the, in the military. 
active, and, you know, in the active military. And Longview would have been 40 miles from Ariel. Yeah. And he was, uh, he, he was a fisherman. I was told that, you know, later in life, he liked to fish a lot. So he may have, you know, been fishing then. So uh, on weekends, he may have left uh, Longview and gone fishing up towards, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Merwin Dam or, uh, you know, in the Columbia or places, of, you know, in that vicinity. Uh, also in World War II, he served in the Aleutian Islands. And I would imagine, and when he got done, he came back to uh, Seattle, and it looks like he was probably at Fort Lewis for a period of time before he finally went on to, uh, I think it was maybe Fort Campbell or somewhere in Kentucky where he was released, you know, in 1946 from active duty. So he was stationed at Fort Lewis? I, the, the military records don't make that explicit, but it shows him coming back from uh, the Aleutian Islands to Seattle, and then it's a number of months before he moves on from there to the next uh, location. Gosh, that's a pretty incredible connection. Yeah, because he, he knew Tacoma and he knew, uh, you know, how far, you know, McCord Air Force Base was from uh, SeaTac and things like that. Yeah, that is really interesting. What about this? So you you hone in on Lackage in late 2016. Is that right? Yeah, that's when I'm really starting to to think it's him. And uh, I actually call up, you know, Nashville and talk to one of his relatives. And this is late January. You know, I think the other thing that, you know, I, I was thinking it was him. But then when that uh, information came out, you know, on the travel channel about, uh, you know, the Macron analysis and, you know, working in electronics, uh, and I found out he worked at Nashville Electronics. I mean, that sort of brought everything together, you know, brought a lot of things together. And he so, didn't die until 2017, though. So when you're right. looking into this, he's alive. Yeah, he was. And I, I talked to one of his family members, but he was in, you know, uh, uh, some place where, you know, like a nursing home where he needed to be cared for and he was suffering from dementia and this is late January when I find this out. And then on February 4th of 2017, he passes away. Because he was approaching 100 years old. He was 95. 95, 95. okay. Yeah. Now, the other thing I always like to bring out, because like I, I've already discussed the fact that who was avenged by D.B. Cooper and who would have more of a grudge against the FBI than, than Joe Lackage, okay? But the other thing I like to bring out is if we look at that, I say there are four phases to this man's revenge, okay? And they're quite significant, okay? The first phase, obviously, is he just uh, baffled the FBI for 45 years until in an embarrassed fashion, they just sort of said we're giving up, okay? So uh, there's the first phase of his revenge, you know, he embarrasses and totally confuses the FBI, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, an organization that prides itself on, you know, uh, getting their man every time. Then his second phase, I say, is what he did was so bold and so spectacular and yet so successful, okay, that... Um, 
there were over a dozen copycat hijackings in the next year. Now, none of the copycat hijackings were ever successful, but, you know, they were crimes that the FBI had to deal with that they might otherwise never have had to worry about. Well, to be fair, some of the other crimes, other hijackings were successful, but they were caught almost immediately, all of them. Well, you know what? That's what I mean. You know, they they, they didn't go... Uh, What's what's what I want to use here? They 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 didn't end up uh, escaping like Cooper did, right? The third phase, I say, is just let's look at the FBI with all their manpower, all their resources, all their uh, laboratories and informants and everything else. And in forty-five years, they couldn't solve this case. Yet here am I, a guy with no real experience in investigations, and I have nothing but a telephone and access to the internet, and I basically solved the case in eight months. <laughs> okay? But the real uh, revenge is what I call the fourth phase. Okay? Because if we look at the events that happened in late 1971, remember it was October 4th, 1971, when the 5 8 November incident happened, and 51 days later, D.B. Cooper becomes the most infamous hijacker in U.S. history and gets his revenge, okay? So uh, the fourth phase is when we look back on these incidents in late uh, 1971, we're going to realize that without 5-8 November, there never would have been a D.B. Cooper, okay? So when we ask who was the real criminal in the D.B. Cooper case, we're going to rationally look at it and say, you know, it was the FBI itself. That makes sense. And that would be the most damning, you know, uh, phase of his revenge, you know, that there is. He got his revenge. Yeah. Now, uh, I just had a couple of, one other tidbit that I thought was kind of interesting about a year ago, I talked to Bill Radicek. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a real gentleman, gentleman, a real nice guy. One of the and, pilots for anyone that doesn't know. Yes, yes. He was the co-pilot on Flight 305. Yes, thank you. And, uh, you know, we talked for a long time. One thing uh, I hope that can happen, because Bill told me, you know, he doesn't like going on a lot of these documentaries because they're always trying to make him say something that he doesn't want to say or isn't isn't true or factual. To validate their have, theory or suspect. Right, right. They have an agenda and they want, uh, you know, him to support their agenda. So he's sort of got tired of, of this. And I, I mean, I can see what he's talking about. If you look at D.B. Cooper case closed, is Tina saying, no, it's not, it's not... Uh, um, Rackstraw. Rackstraw, right. You know, it's not him. And so what happens now, Now, you know, well, she doesn't remember. It's been too long. Uh, you know, she's no longer a, a credible witness and blah, 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 blah. So that that's what happens. You know, she goes on the show and what do they do? Then they throw her under the bus, right? So I can see why he feels that way. So I'm just hoping someday somebody want to do a documentary with Bill where he can really tell the truth. Because he told me several things that I've never heard before and I thought kind of interesting, but I'll just share one with you that I thought was pretty good. Remember Cooper being the nice guy he was, he ordered meals for the crew? Yeah. You remember that? Mm -hmm. Do you know what happened to those meals? I don't. 
Well, Bill told me the story. Uh, of course, uh, what they did is they brought him in and they put him down in, uh, uh, you know, the seats in first class right behind the cockpit. Okay. And, you know, within four minutes after the plane uh, took off from Seattle, uh, Tina's in the cockpit and they locked the door. Okay. So they're locked in the cockpit and obviously Cooper jumps and then they land in Reno and they never went out to get the meals. So they get down in Reno and, you know, they realize that Cooper is no longer on the plane. So the FBI gets on and they got dogs and he says, you know, the meals were Salisbury steak. And he says, when the dogs came on, they smelled that Salisbury steak. They immediately tore into the meals and ate them up. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> the meals went to the dogs. <laughs> that is crazy. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Something I'd never heard. So, yeah, that's why it'd be good if Bill could tell his story because he's got some got some good things to add. One thing I learned in talking to you over the, the last few weeks or months is everyone always says they lost the cigarette butts. And you oh. told me they did not lose the cigarette butts. Well, lose isn't the right word, okay? And if you'll give me a minute, I'll get you the right FBI document here to... So people can go see for themselves. Okay. Uh, this is FBI document DB Cooper-3556 and 3557. Okay. And it talks about, you know, it kind of goes to the director from SAC Las Vegas. It says transmitted under separate cover is one towel containing hair of fiber, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they're requesting them to, you know, do an analysis on the, the hair and the towel. And then they also say uh, uh, there is a laboratory is also requested to examine the ashtray contents and specifically process any Raleigh filter tip cigarette butts for possible fingerprint identification. Okay. So they just, you know, give those directions. And then the final paragraph, which is just one sentence, says, all of the above enclosures may be destroyed at the Bureau upon completion of the evaluation. Boy, looking back, what a mistake that is. Uh, well, you know, I mean, nobody knew that there would be such a thing as DNA evidence, you know, 40 years down the road. <laughs> yeah. So, But, you know, I, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that they did their, their – uh, examination, you know, they determined that they couldn't find, or maybe they had partial uh, fingerprints or something, but they processed it. And then they just destroyed, destroyed the hair and the, uh, and the cigarette butts, probably in an incinerator or something. You know, just, that was uh, just the, you know, <laughs> the instructions. <laughs> so there's no, no big mystery here. Once you read the FBI documents. Yeah, exactly. That mystery is solved because I've always heard it was uh, it got lost in the handoff between FBI departments, be it Reno versus Seattle. Yeah, no, they said uh, next, take a look at them and then throw them away. Right, right. In other words, once you process them for fingerprints and all that, uh, they have no further value. Uh, you know, just get rid of them. So they didn't ask for them back or anything like that. Just they can be destroyed. But <laughs> anyway, that's just just from reading the documents. And I like you. You said to me, uh, "You'll have to forgive me, Darren. I've only read the first ten thousand pages," which yeah, I thought yeah. was hilarious. 
<laughs> well, there's been more released. You know, I don't have to. I think I was saying I, I've downloaded, you know, the other uh, sections or whatever you want to you want to call it. They release these things at about you know one part at a time, and every one is about four or five hundred pages. And I think they're up around fourteen thousand pages, but I haven't gone beyond ten thousand. Yeah, I got to give you props for that because as as much as I love DB Cooper, I look at those documents and I'm just bored out of my mind. Well, it's they're so terrible. Not they're, they're they're redacted, so you can't even read it hardly. And then you know you get all these things, you know, women's turning in their ex-husband or somebody's turning in their neighbor because he didn't like the government and he used to, you know, be in the military and uh, all these crazy, wacky things, okay? But the FBI has to go uh, uh, investigate and, you know, come back and say, no, he, you know, didn't fit the description or, you know, he wasn't in Portland, Oregon, you know, on November 24th, et cetera. Yeah, and like you were saying, there's so much redacted. So many of those things, I'll look at them, and there's so much redacted that I don't know who they're talking about, where they're mm. talking about, or even yeah. what they're talking about. Well, that's that's why I wanted to, uh, you know, read those two about uh, Harold Babitsky and his daughter because they're interviewed, and you can't really get a lot out of it. But basically, you know, she saw Cooper uh, walking west. Uh, she was driving east. He was walking west on the north side of Lewis River Road, you know, about two or three miles out of, uh, you know, the village of Ariel. And uh, uh, it doesn't say it in thing, but he was dressed in all black and he was not a heavy man. She called him thin. And so, uh, and, you know, again, a probability analysis of, you know, somebody who fits all that description walking in this, you know, uh, very rural area in, on a rainstorm in the night. Okay, who else is it? Tell me. Some stranger just wanted to go get some exercise on the, on the day before Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this will be solved? You know, I, I think it will. I mean, what it is, is it will take patience. And in fact, I want to ask your listeners for some help. Okay. Um. I told you there was this 5-8 November incident that uh, in which Joe's daughter was killed. Well, the man who was on the plane, who was sort of coerced by George Gift to coming, you know, to the airport, his name was Bobby Wayne Wallace. Well, he was put on trial for air piracy. And in early June of 1972, they were making jury selection. And Joe and his wife went to Jacksonville and they stayed at where well, they were at the Beaches Holiday Inn in Jacksonville. And they were interviewed by a man named Bill Goodman. Uh, Bill went on to be uh, 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 in Kentucky public television, I think, for a number of years. And I actually talked to Bill, but he doesn't remember the interview or remember Joe Lackage, okay, in particular. But Joe must have said something in this interview, which is shown as being one minute and 22 seconds long, because it came to the attention of the judge. Uh, and this was like Sunday night, June 11th, I believe, when this was aired at the local station, WJAX TV in Jacksonville. I think it was also aired at WSME, WSMV TV in Nashville. Okay. And 
Uh, I contacted both of those stations, but they said that their records didn't go back that fast, so they wouldn't have the interview. Uh, I ended up speaking with the judge who presided over this air piracy trial. His name is Judge Gerald Joflat, very prestigious judge. He's like 89 years old and still active. And he told me, he said, you know, either a transcript or the actual video of this interview should be in the court records. So I uh, contacted the archives of the court and the archivist looked it up. And sure enough, they had a copy of a court order signed by Judge uh, Joe Flatt himself uh, directing a U.S. Marshal to go get a copy of this interview from WJAX. And I guess I didn't tell you, but uh, uh, the legal team all went to WJAX studios and saw the interview and when they came back, they asked the prospective jurors if any had seen the interview, and about a half a dozen of them had, and they were all excused from jury duty because whatever, you know, Joe said would have pre-prejudiced their, uh, you know, their thoughts or their judgment. So uh, I think if we can get a copy, again, I went back to the archivist, and, you know, definitely they got a copy of it, and Exhibit B was supposedly the copy of this videotape, but they can't find it. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so the videotape was there, okay, and it was there under Exhibit B, but it's not there. Now, I think more than likely it's been misplaced, but if some of the listeners have uh, connections with the court system or maybe we can find somebody who, uh, for some reason, videotaped this years ago and hasn't, I'm hoping we can do that because if we can get this interview in front of uh, the primary witnesses, you know, Tina, uh, Flo and Alice, and they can see this man, they can hear his voice, they can see his mannerisms, uh, we're going to be on our way to solving this case. Okay. And that was an interview done by Bill Goodman, Sunday, June 11th. And what were the two stations again? I'm sorry, Bill. Yeah, WJAX in Jacksonville and WSMV in Nashville. Okay. So that's if somebody has some type of connections or abilities to, you know, get this information, uh, uh, that that would be, you know, the first step, you know, once, uh, you know, the primary witnesses look at Joe and say, oh, yeah, that's the man who hijacked the plane, then I think the families are going to, you know, be you know, much more receptive to uh, uh, understanding what happened. What do you think of the reaction to your story has been? (laughs) Oh, it's all over the place, right? Uh, uh, Some people will say I'm a quack because of the, uh, like I say, the, the spiritual guidance factor. And, you know, I've thought about, you know, not even saying anything about that. You know, I could just ignore it and pretend... It didn't happen. But then I'm not really telling the story honestly, okay? I mean, I just have decided I'll I'll take the ridicule, okay? It's fine because, uh, you know, I I can tell that I, you know, and, and, you know, people can say what they want about spiritual guidance. Uh, I, I think 100 million people saw a spiritually guided event on live television. So... Uh, and that goes back, 
you know, a little over four years ago, and it was the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 49. And it was the Seattle Seahawks versus the New England Patriots. And it was a very competitive game. The lead changed, you know, several times. At the end, the Patriots were ahead 28 to 24, but Seattle had taken the ball all the way down to the Patriot one-yard line. It was second down. They had a timeout left, I think 26 seconds on the clock. I mean, victory looked, you know, imminent for the Seahawks. But one man on the field had a vision, and he made a game-changing, miraculous play, and that man was Malcolm Butler. And, I mean, if you uh, look at, uh, you know, what happened, I mean, Malcolm was, uh, when he's done with that play and he's being helped off the field, uh, he's beside himself. He's, he's crying like a baby. Uh, something definitely happened to this man. And on the sidelines, you know, he's, he's, tears are running down his face. And he's just overwhelmed with emotion. And um, I had something here. Uh, after the game, in the interview, he tells, you know, the, in the post-game interview, he says, I just had a vision that I was going to make a big play. And it came true, Butler said. I'm just blessed. I can't explain it right now. It's crazy. Okay? And then later he said, I knew what was going to happen. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. So, you know, you don't have to believe what I say, but I say that was a spiritually guided event. And just like uh, Malcolm Butler knew what was going to happen, I knew D.B. Cooper had somehow suffered some kind of tragic event and that the grudge was his motivation for this hijacking. I definitely like that you included the, the spiritual part in the book. And I, I really don't think that if you used a divining rod or a crystal ball or anything to come up with the same person, that the way you came up with it really should discredit the work that's done. So whether or not you came up with Lackage with a crystal ball or spiritual guidance or anything like that, that I, I really think that doesn't matter. What matters yeah. is, does, he, does it fit? Can you plug him yeah, in? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's what I decided. I'm going to let the results speak for themselves, okay? So, uh, you know, it's all there in the FBI documents, okay? If you're looking for a man who's desperate for money and that's why he hijacked the plane, uh, doesn't agree with the FBI documents, okay? And uh, if you're going to have a man uh, jump out of an airplane and uh, basically uh, uh, put his life at risk because uh, over at the drop zone when uh, Larry Carr was, you know, actively posting, he asked, who would do the coup jump? Who would do the jump? Cooper did for a million dollars, which is about what the money was worth in 2007. There were no takers, and even one of the articles in uh, one of the Portland papers, they didn't name Ralph Himmelsbach directly, but you know I'm pretty sure by what they're saying it was him. But Ralph says there was a world champion parachutist who said no amount of money could induce him or or entice him to make the jump that Cooper did. So it shows you that this was not a slam dunk. This was a very risky uh, 
uh, activity that that Cooper undertook. Oh, definitely. It's it's not okay. your typical sport jumper. Right. So, uh, you know, given given all that, uh, uh, like I say, I I rest my case. You know that I have looked and looked and looked for ways to eliminate this man, but there are none. Okay. And when I do the probability analysis and he's one in a billion, uh, and, and I have people from Nashville who were very skeptic when I first talked to him, but now agree with me because like I say, it was the, you know, man who was soft voice, but, uh, very polite at all times. I mean, when they, when they heard that, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's him. It's him. You know, all the other stuff agrees, but when, when you add that in, you know, there was no question. You've spoken about the drop zone and the DB Cooper forum and in, in the acknowledgements on, in your book, you thank Bruce Smith. What, what do you think you know, of the reaction of your work inside the Cooper vortex or inside the DB, DB Cooper community has been? Well, I'll just tell you that when I first went over there, Bruce was kind of excited because Bruce, uh, you know, has a belief in, he calls it remote viewing and other things like that. So, so Bruce was kind of excited because, you know, of this uh, spiritual connection. Okay. But when he went over to the Cooper forum and told them about it and all this stuff, and, you know, they sort of go, Oh well, boy, here we go. And I got on the forum for a while and uh, um, some people were pretty good, but some people were uh, kind of uh, rude and uh, critical. Okay. And I finally just decided I'm, I'm making no progress here. I, you know, I've got to go on and, and keep finding out more about Joe Lackage. And, and these people here are just, you know, saying, oh, that couldn't have happened. We already talked about it, you know, six years ago. So, uh, you know, you're a newbie here. You know, you don't know anything. I uh, just, okay. What do they know. have to discredit your work? What do they point to? I don't know. They, you know, they uh, say it couldn't have been Joe because, uh, you know, how would he get from uh, Nashville to uh, 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 Portland, Oregon and plan it and do it all in 51 days? I'm like, well, I didn't, you know, it, yeah, it's 2,000 miles, but I don't think that's, you know, insurmountable to insurmountable, you know, to plan that and do it in 51 days. So it's just things like that. And, you know, I, to Bruce Smith's credit, I have to, I have to agree with him. You know, I don't have any money. I don't have a parachute. I don't have any of the physical evidence. Okay. Uh, I believe that evidence exists. I believe that Joe has a very cleverly hidden away somewhere. I don't know where. I just believe that's why now the money ever made it to circulation. He wasn't interested in money. Just hold up somewhere in a, in a very secret place. Have you thought about writing another book? Well, I want to bring this to more of a conclusion before I write another book. Yep. I probably need to talk about, you know, how I found this man and, you know, what I did and how I got there and so forth. But uh, before I do, I, I want to find that money in the parachute. As I say, the next step for me is hopefully we could find this video, this interview he granted uh, back on June 11th of 1972. Because if 
you know, I can get uh, the prime witnesses to say, oh yeah, my, that is him. Then, you know, the next, the next step will be easier, which would be approaching the family. Is, do you think that's the only way this case gets solved? Is it a parachute, a $20 bill? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think there'll always be skeptics that unless you got that real physical evidence or, you know, something, you know, uh, very conclusive. Okay. See, because I can sit here and do my uh, probability analysis and say that Joe Lackage is one in a billion, but uh, it doesn't get a lot of people's attention. You know, math isn't always uh, something they put a lot of faith in. Why do you think this isn't getting the attention it deserves? Well, my, I don't know. I, I've decided I'm not going to be pushy. You know, I've decided that, you know, everything is here. It's all laid out. Rational people are going to be able to sit here and look at this and hear about it and make informed decisions. Okay. And for me to get out and get all, uh, try and get all hyped about it and you know, push it, I don't have to. It's just patience. I, I feel that patience is going to, is going to, you know, have paid the dividends. Do you think that because there are you know, 30 other people pushing a suspect, that that clouds the water, it makes it more difficult? What, what impact do you think that has on, on the case and on your work? Well, you know, if you look at a lot of these suspects, okay, and I'm not familiar with every one of them, okay, but if you look at a lot of the ones that have been, you know, let's say more popular over the past 20 years, I mean, there's a strong case for every one of them, okay? I mean, you know, here was somebody who was, uh, uh, you know, in the military and did a lot of skydiving, so they had the abilities. Now, in some ways, that doesn't fit because, Cooper didn't make great decisions when he jumped. You know, he took the uh, the dummy reserve with him instead of the good reserve. So it's almost like he was somebody who knew something about skydiving, but he certainly wasn't someone who had done it recently or was up to date on, you know, all the latest trends. Right. Okay. But, you know, all these different people have, have uh, you know, certainly uh, – um, uh, you know, have some merit for, from one reason or another, okay? Do they came into money, you know, after November 24th or uh, um, they, uh, you, you know, <clears throat> made a confession and told somebody all about it and, you know, came up with all these details, uh, these, these type of things. You know, there's always some credibility to, to what's said. The thing that I'm going to say is, Number one, okay, from the appearance category, nobody comes close to being, you know, meeting everything the way Joe Lackage does, okay? He's got the right height, the right hair color, the right hairstyle, the right age. You know, you put, you put everything together. There are no suspects that come together on everything, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they may may have the right height, but then, you know, they uh, are on the heavy side or, you know, they don't have much hair or they have blue eyes, you know, all these type of things that, you know, can rule him out. I don't have to make any excuses for Joe whatsoever. And people in Nashville look at that uh, D.B. Cooper sketch and say, boy, that sure looks like Joe. 
all right? Then the other thing is the grudge, okay? And we've talked about this. Anybody who did this hijacking had to have one hell of an intense grudge, all right? You won't find a suspect. I've seen no suspect to date who would have a grudge as intense as Joe Lackage. I mean, damn, they killed his daughter, okay? That's the way he, they murdered his daughter. That's the way he sees it. As far as grudges go, that's a good one. Okay. So, uh, you know, when you put those two things together, uh, that that speaks volumes. What do you think he did with the money? Well, it's, it's put away somewhere. I don't know. It's, you know, in a, in a storage container or he built it into a, you know, built a false wall in a closet and put it behind the false wall. I, you know, he's done something to hide it. He's got it. You know, he's not alive anymore, but I mean, he, he hid it somewhere. You don't think he spent any of it? No, no, he, he, you know, you sort of look at it and I may have even said this in my book. If I didn't, you know, I'll have to say it in my next book, his daughter who he adored, I was told he adored his daughter, Susan. Okay. She's gone. And what's he got in its place? Nothing but filthy money. Excuse my French, filthy fucking money. Okay. And you know, what would you rather have your daughter back or this money? Meant nothing to him. Just, just something to taunt the FBI. It's all it is. It was just a trophy that, Hey, I got you guys. Trophy, Yeah. Trophy. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Do you think that this case could be solved with DNA? Like the golden state killer, like ancestral or, uh, using genealogy. Well, you know, I think that definitely could, 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 you know, play into it. I don't know how good the FBI's DNA sample is. They say it's partial or something. They've ruled some people out, I think, because of it. But, you know, maybe, maybe it's probably the good word. Okay. But I'll be quite honest with you. I don't see the FBI wanting to cooperate. Okay. I mean, look at the implications. Why does the FBI want to go out and, you know, uh, prove that, you know, they were negligent? Why do they want to go out and, you know, verify that Joe Lockich uh, beat him and, and got his revenge? I thought about this DNA thing for a while, but I decided the FBI, you know, they wouldn't be honest. And unless they somehow we could get a verified DNA sample and have an independent lab look at it, but I, I'm not even sure they'd give us the real DNA. So I, I've given up on the DNA as being possible until we prove, you know, some other way. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, it is the FBI saying it's we have a partial sample that can rule people out, but not necessarily uh, hone in on one person. It's it's frustrating. Right. Like, well, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. No, I don't know for sure either. You know, I, I'm not a DNA expert, so I can't tell you what is, uh, uh, you know, you know what what exactly they can they can detect and can't detect in terms of uh, you know maybe they can say they were related. You know, if you came in with a DNA sample from one of his real relatives, but you know, I'm not even sure. You know, they could do that. 
All right. I have a question that I've been saving to ask you since I bought your book. <laughs> okay. I got to go now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, go, go ahead, Darren. How did you come up with this cover? Well, you know, it was like, uh, what happened to D.B. Cooper? You know, everybody always wonders, you know, where did he go? Uh, what happened? So I just thought, well, he just parachuted into Oz, right? He he just totally left the, you know, the realm of this world and went somewhere else. And so uh, I had a, a, a gentleman that's a good friend of mine and his wife does graphics art. So she created it for me. I love it. And were you aware that Seattle is sometimes referred to as the Emerald City? Maybe not. Hmm. Maybe not. I, I wondered that. I was like, <laughs> did he know that? Is there a connection? But I know you're uh, you're way on the East Coast, so. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I did. Have you ever been to D.B. Cooper Days or the Pacific Northwest at all? Oh, yeah. I've been to the Pacific Northwest, but I've never been to D.B. Cooper Days. Uh, I, you know, I think the first time I went to Seattle was in like 83. Uh, and that's why I mentioned this connection to you because my brother was uh, at the Bremerton Naval Shipyard. So I went out to visit him for a while and traveled around. Then I've been there on vacation and on business, you know, several times as well, but not recently. Do you, are you going to attend the next DB Cooper con this November? <sighs> wasn't planning to. Well, I think if you could make it, you should come. <laughs> okay, Darren. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put some serious thought into it, I guess. Okay. I will save you a seat right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I, I take it you're going to attend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I went last <laughs> year. Um, Eric Eulis put it together. And uh, he's working on it again this year, and I, you know I'm stoked. Any anything DB Cooper related, I'm all over it. So what got you sucked into the Cooper Vortex? Uh, what got me sucked in was the book Skyjack. I got it as a gift, yeah. and it, I yeah. think it sat around on my bookshelf for quite a few months too. And then uh, I read that, and it talks about um, this guy stopped working with me because he wants to write his own book, which is. It's Porteous and Blevins book. So oh, yeah. I had to buy that book next, which led to a different book. And then I've, I think I've read almost all of them now. I haven't read ha ha, ha 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 all the way through. <laughs> um, okay. But I do have a copy. Brian Woodruff gave me one. Oh, okay. But yeah, that's, that's what got me sucked into this. You know, I lived in Woodland for quite a few years and it was just a local story. Uh, so, oh yeah, sure. For, so I was just interested in it that way. Um, yeah. And then got that book and boy, did I go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, hey, that's a, I mean, there are worse things to be involved in. So, oh yeah, I've, I've really met so many great people doing this. All right. Well, anything else we need to know, Bill? No, I, I think, uh, you know, that pretty much, pretty much covers the topic and you know, what I've done over the past several years uh obviously you you know uh aware of my book and uh they say someday i'll look at another book but right now uh 
I don't think the final chapter is ready to be written for the second book. So that's why I haven't gone that route yet. Well, I look forward to your second book. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your time, dear. Is there, uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you or if somebody has some info on that Bill Goodman interview, is there somewhere where people can reach you? Yeah, I would use the elusive one at noveledge.com. Perfect. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Well, thank you for coming on, Bill. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Well, thank you, Darren. It was, it was uh, an enjoyable time. Thank you. Make sure you pick up a copy of Bill's book, The Elusive D.B. Cooper, How He Escapes. It's awesome, but if you aren't a reader, I would recommend that you at least look it up so you can check out the cover art we talked about. There's a link to it in the show notes. If you want to talk about what you heard on the show, you can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter, we are at D.B. Cooper Podcast or email dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, let us know by leaving a review wherever you listen. Thank you to Bill Rollins for coming on the show and for being my most prepared guest. Thank you to Russell Colbert, who truly makes this show happen. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.